So Romans 3 uh, from verse 9, Paul says this. What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Well, do keep uh, that passage open. Uh, as we begin, just to say there's an outline of where we're going um, in the download in your uh, description box on the YouTube page. So do make use of that. Some people like to make notes as they go through to study their thinking and have something to look back on in the week. Also to say that at the end of the talk there'd be an opportunity to ask questions live on our YouTube channel so if you could catch up um, you're not going to get a response it probably won't even uh, allow you to type anything in but if you're listening live then uh, you'll be able to ask a question. I'll explain more about that when we get there uh, but I mention it now since we're going through if what I say prompts a question or a clarification or there's something about the text or the argument of Paul so far in the book, then that's um, not a bad time to ask it. So I'll have a few minutes at the end of the talk to uh, look at any questions or comments that you have. And then um, I'm going to pray now that God would help us and um, then we'll crack on. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is truthful, who is good, and who is sovereign over us. And therefore, as we uh, consider uh, your word, that uh, we would um, listen to it because it's true, that we would trust it because it is a good word to us, and that we would live in the light of it, um, demonstrating uh, that you are rightly sovereign uh, over us and we ask this uh, not only for our good but for your glory amen everyone knows that jesus is the answer but what is the question if you're someone who has been to sunday school you're always on safe ground to answer any question with jesus I mean, you're unlikely to get a Sunday school teacher that will tell a child that Jesus is not the right answer. But what is he the answer to? Or to put it another way, what problem does Jesus solve? Is it, is, is it our mistreatment of God and his creation? 
Is it our sense of guilt and worthlessness? Is it the way we mistreat each other? Is it my sense of nothingness? Is it that we're all children of God but just don't realise it? I mean, does anyone know what the human problem is? And the right diagnosis of the problem is crucial. Presentations of the gospel that don't explain the problem of sin will have a faulty view of their understanding of salvation. And actually, people tend not to preach sin, and so the gospel doesn't make any sense. But thank God that Paul does. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, and his gospel includes sin and judgment. Would you turn back with me to Romans chapter 3 and have a look at Romans chapter 3 verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better? No, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Paul has been making a charge or a case against uh, all of humanity. The way the Bible divides up all humanity is between Jews and Greeks, who are non-Jews. And both groups have been charged that makes this case against all of humanity. The case against the Greeks was given back in Romans 1, 18 to 32. The charge against them was idolatry. They are guilty of misrepresenting God. The case against the Jews, well that began in Romans chapter 2 verse 1 and continued up to chapter 3 verse 8, the charge against them was unfaithfulness. Despite the privileges of having God's law, they're guilty of not keeping it. And although the charge is different depending in on which group you're in, they're both in the same category of sin, misrepresenting God being unfaithful to God are both in a relational category. They're both dysfunctional towards God. And so Paul charges that both are under sin. Verse 9. Now the phrase under sin is an interesting one because it suggests that the problem is not simply sin but that, that there is a sort of a power of sin that humanity is under. It's going to be this idea of being enslaved to sin that Paul will develop later in Romans chapter 6. But for now it's worth bearing in mind that sin and its consequences are multifactored. And this is important because Jesus claims to provide a complete salvation. And so we must be able to account for the multiple factors about sin when looking at his work. Now the problem of sin with respect to God is one that we've already met in Romans. Sin has received, uh, if you like, a God-centred definition because it is against God. 
misrepresenting him, not keeping his law. As a result, God is justly hostile towards us. His wrath has already been revealed as he hands us over to our idolatry, chapter 1 verse 18. But his wrath is also being stored up for us for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, chapter 2 verse 6. That's the problem of sin with respect to God. But then there's the problem of sin with respect to us as individuals. This is the idea that sin has left us unable to help ourselves, left us hostile to God, chapter 1 verse 30, and left us unable to be spiritually wise. And it's here, this is where this idea uh, uh, of under sin fits in. The sin has created an impossibly difficult position for humanity because we are willing captives to its power. The problem with humanity is not just that it commits sins. The problem is that it is enslaved to sin. And what is needed, therefore, is a new power to break in and set people free from sin. A power that will be found in and only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's also the problem of sin with respect to our enemies. Satan is real and he has a power and influence among humanity. So sin does not merely separate us from God, but it leaves us vulnerable to the malice of another. And if we're not under the benevolent rule of God, then we're subject to the wicked rule of Satan. But Paul, he, he makes no mention to, to that uh, here. Paul's focus at present is the problem of sin with respect to God and with respect to us. So at this point, I want to ask you, have you followed Paul's argument so far? Jew and Gentile are on equal terms when it comes to the judgment of God. Now at this point, Paul substantiates this charge of verse 9 with uh, this piece that runs all the way from 10, verse 10 to verse 18, which is sort of slightly indented in our Bibles. And that's because it's a series of quotations from the Old Testament. This is what God's law says on the matter. This is the, the law's verdict. And as you read through, the selection can seem a little haphazard. And so to, to get our bearings, it's worth noting how this section is top and tailed. So if you have a look, it begins in chapter 3, verse 10 with, no one is righteous, no, not one. And it ends in chapter 3, verse 18, with, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So what we have here is that the first line, verse 10, is the heading of what follows, and the last line, verse 18,
comes back to the same theme. Paul's purpose in citing these verses is clearly to substantiate the accusation of verse 9. Verse nine. Now, the all of verse 9 is taken up in the there is no of the quotations. Now at this point we might be thinking that Paul is bringing to bear the witness of the law against humanity. But who is the charge against in the Old Testament passages? We I mean, take for example uh, Romans chapter 3 verse 13. So that says 3.13 Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Now this is a quote from Psalm 5 uh, that uh, we read earlier, Psalm 5 verse 9. And in Psalm 5 verse 9, who is in view? the enemies of God. If you recall, it's in Psalm 2 that we're introduced to the main characters of the book of Psalms. There is God, there is God's king, and then there are God's enemies, namely the nations who oppose God and his king. And in Psalm 5, David is speaking. David's significance is that he is God's Messiah, God's king. And in the psalm, he speaks of his enemies and suffering at their hand. Now, it's no surprise that David is suffering in this way because such an experience is not unusual for the Lord's anointed. It's unavoidable because his kingship confronts and opposes rival kingships. The Messiah must suffer because rival authorities will simply not give way to him. And it's David's description of his enemies that's quoted here in Romans 3.13. And here's the thing. This description of God's enemies from Psalm, verse, Psalm 5 is taken as indicative of all humanity by Paul. It's applied here to the Jews and the Greeks. This category of enemies of God who are hostile and opposed to him, Paul puts into this category all of humanity. The characterization of the enemies of God becomes the characterization of all. Paul is summarizing. He's not differentiating the enemies of God and the unfaithful of Israel. This is all one group, the enemies of God. Well, with the charge summed up, Paul now draws out an implication. And it's an implication regarding the position of humanity before God. Now, if this is the charge, where does this leave humanity? before God. Chapter 3 verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
humanity is held accountable to God. God is not answerable to us. We are answerable to him. One of the dangers of passing judgment on others that we saw back in Romans chapter 2 verse 1 is that we can create a fiction about ourselves, a distorted view of reality where we escape God's judgment. The fiction occurs because when we pass judgment, we assume the role of judge. The implication is that I will escape judgment because I am the judge. Yet Paul pictures God as the one offended and as the judge who weighs the evidence and pronounces the verdict. And this of course fits with our God-centred definition of sin. God is the offended party. Now the phrase every mouth may be stopped is a striking one in verse 19. It's the idea that there is nothing to say. There's no defence. Humanity is at the mercy of God. Paul has um, already anticipated objections to uh, this verdict in a series of questions that he engaged with back in chapter 3 verses 1 to 9. You know, what if? Uh, why not? You know, Paul is prepared you know, to engage in, in some of that as part of his prosecution. But at the end of the day, Paul's verdict is not up for questioning because it is God's verdict. God has all the prerogative powers of judge. And in many ways, this underlines the justice of God. This isn't God lashing out. God's not an angry God who just doesn't like people. This is God giving people according to what they have done. Now, before we conclude, <clears throat> It's worth saying a little bit about the law because Paul picks up on it again in verses 19 and 20. And in many ways we're not expecting this because Paul is summarising. The charge is against the whole world whereas the law is in respect to the Jews. So what's he doing here? I mean, have a look again at verse 19. Chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, that's what we've just seen in verses 10 to 18, it speaks to those who are under the law, that is the Jew, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. I mean, what is the logic here? How is it that Paul can use accusations addressed to the Jews those who were under the law, to declare that all people are guilty. What Paul is doing is an idea that we touched on a few weeks ago, that we discussed at, we, we discussed, at, what, sorry, what Paul is doing is an idea we touched on a few weeks ago when we discussed at length the distinction that Paul makes between the Jew and the Gentile. And it's the idea of moving from the greater to the lesser. You see, in Paul's day, 
It was a given that the Gentiles were idolaters and therefore under the judgment of God. You got that for free. What Paul is having to work harder on is why the Jews are in that category too. That is after all why he has spent the majority that's after all what he has spent the majority of his time on. Now that's totally different from today. Today Jews are not really the issue. Uh, we tend to be engaging with Gentiles and the charge is idolatry. But that's not one that's readily accepted today. And that's why we, you know, we need to go back to creation with people and show them, uh, go back to the uncreated creator. But that's not Paul's issue. The greater thing for Paul is to make the charge against the Jew, which he does. And having done the greater thing, the lesser thing will follow. If the Jews aren't excluded from the judgment of God, then it surely follows that Gentiles who have no claim on God are also guilty. If Jews are not righteous, then how much less the Gentiles? That's the argument. And this will make sense if we remember that Paul's chief purpose throughout Romans 1.18.3.20 is to demonstrate that Gentiles are guilty and in need of God's righteousness. This could be, sorry, <laughs> not that. This will make sense if we remember that Paul's chief purpose throughout Romans 1.18.3.20 is not to demonstrate that Gentiles are guilty and in need of God's righteousness. This could be assumed. Paul's chief purpose is to demonstrate that Jews bear the same burden and have the same need. And that's the reason why all people are included in the scope of verse 19 and 20. That in that there's a particular reference to the Jew and the law. Well, we began by asking if Jesus is the answer, what is the question? What is the problem of which Jesus is the solution? The problem is that all human beings, without exception, justly stand under the wrath of God. That is where we stand because of our sin. And this is where we finish for today. Not that this is the end by any means. Paul has already introduced introduced us uh, the solution in the gospel of Jesus Christ back in Romans chapter 1 and it's it's this that Paul is going to unpack for us in uh, 321 to 26 that we'll look at next week but there is a sense that we're not really prepared to understand what's going on in 321 26 until we've absorbed something of the weight that precedes it do we've looked at this morning Unless, unless that is clear, Jesus won't make any sense. Well, uh, let me pray and then I'll open up to any questions or comments that you might have. 
Heavenly Father, many of us will be used to the Bible telling us what you are like. But we thank you that the Bible also tells us uh, what we are like. And Paul has, over a number of chapters, made a case that all of humanity stand under your judgment because of our sin. And Father, we do pray that that would sink in, that we would appreciate the seriousness of the charge against us, but also where that leaves us before you. And though many of us are familiar with the solution that you provide in the gospel of your son, pray that we would be on board with this um, assessment of humanity that covers all nations, all people of the world, and therefore on Paul's mind why it is that the gospel um, must be preached to all because it is only your gospel which is the power of salvation through faith in Christ. So help us we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, opportunity now for questions or comments. The way this works is um, we use the live chat. If you have a question you can put a queue in and as our team tech will demonstrate and the queue just lets everyone else know there's a question coming so we won't move on until you've had time to type it out as you would like. Always takes a few minutes so have a look back over your notes or your thoughts um, or the passage and um, one question I suppose would be particularly be worth making sure that everyone's on board is, is have you followed the argument so far? So Paul's making an argument if you like he's now made it very clear what the problem is next week we're going to begin to unpack the solution but obviously that's not going to be very helpful if you're still confused or unconvinced what the problem is what the charge is so that might be one thing at least to do is to go back over the last few chapters have you have you got where Paul is taking us because if we're with Paul we're kind of like you know almost I want to read on work the technology a few more moments if you would like the opportunity but you don't have to and obviously there's other ways of asking questions if you want to oh we do have a question from Susie. Which we will patiently wait for. Does it mean others uh, can't get involved? Though we can sometimes have two or three, there is plenty of time. from Simon uh, it's not all come out 
So Simon, I've got here, it says, hi Adrian, where does that leave the Jews today? Then I presume that's an under. I can have a go at answering that, but I'll give you a minute just to see if you want to. There's not there's not a limit to the text, is there? No. But there is, but not as bigger than that. Oh, here we go. Hi, let's start with this then. Hi, Adrian. Where does this leave the Jews today um, in light of Paul's argument? Okay. Yes. Um, so... So I think as we think about um, the storyline of the Bible, since the um, the death, resurrection, and ascension of of the Lord Jesus, He's now enthroned uh, as King in the Kingdom of God. Since that point, we're in this final phase of redemptive history, where um, what God is doing is that through the proclamation of the gospel. He is uh, bringing his people into the kingdom of God through uh, repentance and faith. So in many ways, the phase of redemptive history that Paul begins, or is, you know, is, is part of the, the beginning of, of this final phase, we're still in now. So we're called to proclaim the gospel and call people to not oppose God and his king not to rebel against it but to submit to God and his king and receive mercy at his hand and therefore enter his kingdom as one of his people um, so in many ways that's that, that's still where we are at and so the demand of the gospel is still to call both Jew and Gentile to repentance for the forgiveness of their sins um, so in that sense, it's not changed. I guess the thing that is, is foreign to our ideas is that when Paul talks about Jew and Gentile or when you see the early church go first, there's also a priority for the Jew, go first to the synagogue and tell the Jews because at the end of the day, it is a he's a Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus, but then goes to the Gentiles. We still find that a bit foreign because we're just not engaging with with um, Jewish people, you know, you think about people who, neighbours or work colleagues or students at university, you know, uh, they tend to be all Gentiles. So it can seem a bit foreign to our ears that we've got like, hmm, he's talking about Jews, Just should we be more interested in Jews than we are, that sort of thing. But um, it's, it's because we're one of the nations of the world, you know, the Gospels, you, know, you follow Acts, it's gone from the Jews and in Jerusalem and the surrounding area to the Samaritans and then to the nations that's the Gentiles to the ends of the earth and that's kind of where we are so our, our focus is predominantly on um, uh, engaging with Gentiles and the charge to the Gentile is idolatry you misrepresent God you love to think of God as you choose rather than God um, who's, who's revealed himself and that time of ignorance is over because actually he he's revealed himself par excellence in his son and therefore uh, we're called to get in line with that so yeah 
So I guess that's that's probably what where I'd be thinking. So yeah, nobody's off limits. Um, whilst people still have breath in them, they're called to repentance. Um, so Jews uh, would be under that, but I guess that's just not our. That's not particularly where we find ourselves. And I think hopefully you, you, it's the historical context which explains Paul's kind of emphasis, which just sounds maybe a bit, a bit odd to us, but that's, you know, in many ways it's slightly peculiar to his time. Hopefully that helps. This could be a big one. So while waiting, I'll say one just um, to uh, break the silence. One thing just to encourage uh, students, particularly. So some of you will know that students have been learning an outline of the gospel called Two Ways to Live. Um, so it's basically it's a presentation of the gospel in sort of six parts. Uh, goes through creation, judge, uh, sin, judgment, cross, resurrection, repentance, and faith. But when they talk about sin. Uh, for each um, section, there's a, there's a, a memory verse, well, not a memory verse, a, a verse to show that what they're explaining is what the Bible says. And for the sin one, they um, it's Romans 3, 10 to 12. And one of the things we think about, I mean, we talked about this a few weeks ago with the Philippians verses, that there's lots of verses that you can quote, or people do quote, and actually then what they mean by them is quite different from what the Bible means by them. Um, to the one in Philippians 4 you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me that sort of thing and it's just like basically you can do anything and you just think oh no the all was all the different circumstances that Paul has previously talked about and the context is he's content in all circumstances and that God strengthens him to that contentment and endurance but here I mean it's a good question Romans 3 10 to 12 and if you just heard no one is righteous in the, in the context of explaining the problem of, of, of humanity, no one is righteous, not even one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside together, have they, they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. You kind of think, does that pass the test? Does, I mean, it's saying something significant that all humanity is, there's no one righteous. But also, I mean, it, it means what it, it means, isn't it? Um, even in and out of context and actually it's quite a good place to quote from because Paul is summarising precisely the argument that the verse makes so so in many ways two ways to live is vindicated as at least that, that uh, key verse is um, it seems to be a, a very appropriate place to take people if they, they want to know what the Bible says about the human problem so crack on students now I don't know if we've got technical things because the question still hasn't come yet but we will continue to wait oh here we go okay we've, we can see that Susie do you, oh, do you want to send it again on your team tacker on it Bile on it, they're just going. <laughs> oh.
Okay, we've also got a question from Ben. Okay, Ben says, um, can you, I'm looking at the screen here, he's typed, can you elaborate a little further on how the Jews are not better off than the rest of the nations while in a unique position? Okay, can you elaborate a little further on how the Jews are not better off than the rest of the nations while in a unique position? Okay, let's run with that and we'll give Susie time and the tech team to get their thing through. So, well, I think this is the thing, Ben, and I think this is why Paul's having to work harder in that the Gentiles, it's fairly clear that they, the charge of idolatry stands uh, because of the way that they've um, exchanged the truth about God for um, created things. But the Jews, it's more tricky because in many ways, um, part of their thinking is one of privilege and with that privilege and they are privileged because they're the ones who've received the promises you know um, uh, it was from the Jews that God will raise up the Messiah and so um, uh, you know if you look at salvation history you know they've uh, God has you know, his, he's dwelt with them they've, they've, they've witnessed the mighty acts of redemption um, in uh, from Egypt um, they've had his law um, you know he's provided kings to rule them in righteousness in many ways they're very privileged um, and I guess we want to see that because what the Bible wants us to do is trace the promises through in terms of God's focus is on Israel and the promises he's given to them so we are wanting to follow that that's that's where our attention should be so as we read through the history of Israel we're following the promises and thinking about what we're we learning about the promises how, how are God going to fulfill those promises but the problem for the Jews is is that this privilege has led to presumption um, so you begin to see it and it's interesting because in Romans 2 the first 10 verses he doesn't name the Jews they're named um, oh sorry 2 to 16 it, the Jews only come in when it says uh, 17 but if you yourself if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God but before that he's been a little bit crafty because he's he's implicating them without naming them but if you have a look at back at chapter 2 verse 4 where it says um or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness has meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and penitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, and God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So the problem there, and when it talks about the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, that's talking about the privilege that they've had throughout redemptive history. But their mistake is that they presume on that that actually um, all is well with them and God without those things leading them to repentance. Um, and so in many ways you've got this people who are very privileged but yet are presumptuous. And 
in many ways that's a more dangerous position because there is this kind of um, um, there is this deception because you, you, you kind of think I'm I, I'm you know I'm okay because we have the promises you know we've you know God's dwelt with us etc etc uh, whereas actually what God requires is repentance and obedience which is not what the Jews are known for um, now it's not a surprise because all of that points to the fact that actually final fulfillment hasn't happened in the promises so you know when you look at all the failings of Israel you, you have to think well we're not of the new creation yet you know we, the, the promises haven't been fulfilled so you read on and the, the purpose was always that actually it'd be through Israel that he would raise up his Messiah and it would be through him that the scope of the promises of his rule over the whole world will, will come about um, so yeah so I, I think probably locating looking at um, the Jews in redemptive history I think is helpful because it shows it, it shows what God's purpose is is through them and that he's made promises to a people um, but that those promises when they would be fulfilled beneficiaries would include the nations of the world um, so in many ways it was never it was never just about Jews it was it was it was the Jews were the ones to whom God chose to work through in order to bring about his creation purposes okay let's have a look at Susie's question um, can we equate verse 19 those who are under the law with verse 9 all both Jews and Greeks are under sin or is verse 19 just speaking about the Jews thanks sorry for the delay yes so interesting one Susie because you could think if you look at verse 19 so when it says now we know that whatever the law says that's 10 to 18 it speaks to those who are under the law which are the Jews now you could actually go back to chapter 2 uh, 12 to 16 which talks about the fact that uh, when the Jews are thinking they're privileged because they have the law Paul argument so there's a sense in which the Gentiles also have the law as in um, they still have a sense of that which is approved by God and not approved by God because they're image bearers and so you could be thinking always oh, under the law could that cover both Jew and Gentile but um, Mu in his commentary you know, uh, he thinks under the law is, you know, is is referring to under the Mosaic law that is referring to the Jew and so I think that's why you know um, his explanation is it's moving from the greater to the lesser argument so it does make sense for Paul to say that the Jew is under the law and it says no one is righteous and he can then conclude that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world had to come forth for God because if the Jews mouths are silenced then well, what were you thinking the Gentiles were going to say they have lesser claim on God so I think that's what's going on there I think in verse 9 it's slightly different that here he's picking up on this idea of under sin and that seems to be 
introducing this idea of enslaved to sin, um, powerless, so less under sin as in under the law, but actually it's beginning to talk about this, um, the problem of sin with respect to ourselves, that we are um, helpless. And, and that really kind of sets the trajectory Paul's solution is, is not going to be stop sinning um, because you can't you know if I say well okay next this week uh, stop sinning uh, come back and tell me how you got on um, I can tell you that you will not be able to do that um, and then that means you just think well what am I supposed to do then well we need the power of God for salvation this needs to be God intervening in our lives to free us from the enslavement of sin so I think that's that's what's um, that is what is going on so yeah cool thanks everyone uh, we'll leave it there because we had three but obviously we can continue the um, uh, discussion as we go but we're going to move now to a final reflection.